Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live. Talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. And a good morning to you on this May 20th, a Monday. Uh, where to start? This is always a Monday problem because of essentially three days of news since last we talked. But I think I'm going to try to back away a little bit from the news and be a little more personal today because I had a especially good weekend. And I think it was set off by something that happened after I last saw you on Friday. Um, and it had an impact on me so much so that it sort of carried me through the weekend in a different way and I want to share that with you if you don't mind <laughs> if you don't mind so immediately after the show on Friday I had a meeting with uh, two uh, wonderful women from Planned Parenthood one on the staff there one who serves in a higher up voluntary capacity and uh, this was a, a sobering meeting. Uh, they gave me a lot of information. I didn't have a time to read it all until the weekend, and I did, and I'm not going to get us down right now talking about it, but it was... It, I've talked to you about the fact that Planned Parenthood is, is facing a really dire crisis. Um, it is the whipping boy for the anti... Uh, anti-abortion people and um, anyway so we were talking about that how to how to get through this period how to survive Planned Parenthood of Western Pennsylvania has been here uh, since 1930 so it's you know 80 plus years old my math is holding. 1930, it's, so it's 90 years old here, right? And um, in that time, it has given uh, just incredible uh, service to women in, in this area, especially contraception and, um, and also mostly 72% of all of their clientele are uh, low income women um, and they define low income as uh, people who make less than uh, 150 percent of the federal poverty rate and just to make that clear that would be for a single person an annual income of less than eighteen thousand dollars a year um, so we're talking about very poor people and those are the ones that um, we have been serving Planned Parenthood uh, for years. So I left, I, I left that almost hour-long meeting um, with a lot of mixed feelings, um, a, a feeling of uh, needing to fight uh, a feeling of needing to step up, a feeling of needing to be part of uh, something positive happening as opposed to all the negativity 
And um, as I left here, um, I saw my bus pulling away. <laughs> and I thought, oops, uh, missed that, but I've got some time because they come relatively regularly. So I walked a few blocks down to uh, a bank and got some uh, cash. Remember cash? Some people still carry it. I'm one because I guess I'm old. Um, so I got cash, but on my way to getting cash, I heard uh, a rally of some sort happening in the downtown. And I turned my head as I crossed a street and looked down the street. And yeah, there were picket picketers and they were doing chants and they were in front of the Duquesne Club. For those of you who don't know, the Duquesne Club where the high and the mighty uh, meet. So I went to the bank and then on the way back from the bank, because <clears throat> I realized that, and this often surprises me, that I wasn't on a schedule anymore, that I had time. And uh, I think I live this, what, you know, I do the show, I get back on the bus, I go here, I do this. And I thought, you don't have to get on the next bus either. Go over to the Duquesne Club and see what that's about. That was my first good move, um, pulling away from my rote schedule out of curiosity <laughs> just to see what those people were screaming about. And I walked down on the opposite sidewalk and watched for a while and could tell that it was the electrical workers uh, union. It was unclear to me what, why they were in front of the Duquesne Club and what was happening. So I crossed the street and got closer. There were like three bored looking policemen standing there on the fringes and um, I walked over and started reading the signs they were carrying a little more and, and they were mostly about a two-tier system. This is something that corporations have been doing uh, for years to undermine uh, unions and to keep, I think, uh, a lot of tension and division among their unionized workforce. And two-tier systems are, okay, you guys who've been here for a while, uh, We'll keep paying you at this level, but from now on, hirees are going to be getting less. And they were picketing that because that is what uh, I believe it's Wabco wants to do. Strangely, this was not about a fight here in Pittsburgh. It was a fight in Erie, Pennsylvania. And, uh, but the board of directors of the corporation were having their shareholder meeting in Pittsburgh at the Duquesne Club. That is what was being picketed um, for informational purposes more than anything. 
and to let the shareholders know how the uh, workers felt about it. Um, I bumped into somebody I knew who is a labor activist and I saw a few other people in the crowd that I recognized. Anyway, I thought, I got time and I said, can I join you? And so I started walking in their circle on the sidewalk and I started lending my voice to their chants. And uh, they had some good ones damned if I remember any, but, you know, if you go to enough protest marches, you, the same chants come up over and over and over again, and most of them I'm not wild about. These guys had some good ones, and so I really got into it. I made, like, about uh, ten turns around uh, marching with them, and, um, and then some guy handed me this big sign, and so I carried a well, I held I had my briefcase and my purse on one eye, and I carried my sign in the other, and kept on going around for some time, feeling their energy, and you know, just being aware of this is the way it's always been. The rich guys up there at the Duquesne Club, guarding their wealth and their shareholders wealth while trying to push down the wages that they pay the people who create that wealth and it's for some reason when you take part in any you know when you put your foot on the pavement you carry a sign you chant some chants you stand with the people you feel less despair than if I were normally to talk about the fact that even though the economy, the Trump economy is burgeoning, it sure as hell ain't lifting all boats. It's lifting yachts, not boats. It's lifting yachts. Because all the jobs these people create are getting worse and worse by the minute in terms of pay, in terms of benefits. People who used to have these kind of jobs slept at night. They had pensions so they didn't have to worry about the f what would happen in the future in their old age. They had good benefits. They were real consumers because they had money in their pockets. And then the guys at the top start pulling everything away and back. And there was actually a story in the <coughs> New York Times today about how the Republicans are confused why, why the great Trump economy is not lifting his poll numbers is not, uh, doesn't seem to be in any way breaking through the animosity and rage toward him. And um, it's because it is so extraordinarily an unequal up. Most people, most people, most Americans are not feeling any more <laughs> secure, in fact. So from there, um, 
after I marched for I don't know how long, I, I bid adieu to them and, and went back to my bus stop. Um, and was alone there at the bus stop. And then a, a tiny little woman, <laughs> I mean tiny, she was under five feet and old, and she came and joined me at the bus stop, and she had in her hand a bus schedule, and she's looking at it and reading it and looking at it and muttering to herself, and then she turned to me and said, has the 40 come yet? Buses aren't numbered. And I said, I haven't been there all that long, but this, but I have not seen the 40. The 44 just went by. Oh, boy, she said, you know, the four, I think I missed it, blah, 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 and she was having trouble. And she started talking to me. And we were having, you know, a good conversation about public transit and this and that. She had a... She had a accent and and a bright, wonderful old face. And she says to me at one point, Are you Italian? And I said I laughed and said, No, but I've been asked that many, many times. I'm 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 not Italian. And she said, uh, well, you're not, so what are you? I said, I'm Jewish. And you know, I have to say, when that kind of exchange has happened in my past before, I'm Jewish, where I will say I'm Jewish. Because that's why I look Italian. I don't look Italian because my, my ancestors uh, ran from Lithuania and Russia. <laughs> I, I look... Italian because I come from the Jewish people in the Medi on the Mediterranean like Italians. And I told her, I said, I'm mistaken for Greek. I'm mistaken for, I said, because we're, you know, all right there in the Mediterranean. And then she says, I worked for Jewish people most of my life. And then begins to tell me these marvelous stories. She worked for the Kaufmans of Falling Water, the Kaufman's of Kaufman Department Store. And she was telling me stories about them and how wonderful they were to her. I never asked what she did, but I thought it would be some domestic uh, work. And she talked of working also for some other prominent Jewish families. I will leave unnamed since they're still very much here. And she talked of a family named Wolf who I believe was the remaining uh, Kaufman family, maybe a daughter who married a guy named Wolf. She worked for them. And she said, Mrs. Wolf, when she died, left me $10,000 in her will. I said, wow. <laughs> she must have truly valued your work. She said, oh. I valued her. She returned that to me. And she said with that 10000 she she bought a house. 
a house that would allow her to more readily care for her handicapped son. And um, she says, I'm still in that house. And this woman had such an inner joy about her, such a, well, it was just, I mean, (laughs) I just felt lifted up by that conversation, which I never would have had if I hadn't gone off my schedule if I hadn't marched with the electrical workers, if I hadn't taken the bus. And I was so thrilled to see the 44 coming. I said, your bus, your bus is here, because I didn't want her having to wait. She made me look young. I'm, she was an old woman. And... Um, we exchanged warm, <laughs> you know, warm goodbyes. It was so nice talking to you. Thank you so much. And when she got on her bus, I just felt so good. And I'm standing there feeling so good in a, a young black woman with a stroller and a baby in it and another little girl came up and was standing there and we started talking. I admittedly started the conversation. I don't think I would have done that except that the Italian woman had started in a conversation with me that just uplifted me and here was another lovely little group and um, I began to speak to them and they were getting on my bus and by the time we got on my bus I knew so much (laughs) about that little family and those two little girls and their lovely, lovely young mother. She was 27 years old and she she had the bear i mean i'm thinking wow what a what a bearing for someone that young and so so nice and so we get on the bus and i end up talking to the person sitting next to me on the bus they were a little less receptive but i bounced off the bus when we got to the stop and i just felt Now why? Because I'd engaged in human <laughs> human interaction. I had been open to just getting a little off my schedule and things happened. I was energized by the picketers. I'd been energized by the people from Planned Parenthood. I was warmed by that woman and by the young mother and her girls. And I I didn't make any, like, resolution. 
But I noted that on the bus, that whole bus ride, I never took out my cell phone. In fact, I forgot all about my cell phone till almost dinner time. That's unbelievable. I was so into being where I was. I think we've lost that to just be. And somehow I thought, you feel so much better than you have felt for a week. Your head was not in that thing. You were engaging people you didn't know or being open to being engaged. And you're open to being engaged if you're not like this, if you're standing up and taking in your environment. And I don't know, for me, it carried me through the entire weekend. Really, these three chance occurrences happening in a a half-hour period. Because I learned something, or I was reminded of something. That... Being where you are, not where this takes you, not seeking to know stuff you don't need to know at that moment. Stay. Look at the people around you. Notice the trees. I'm serious. I spent the whole weekend in this like. I took my dog to the dog park. I did not take my phone. I sat there for over an hour as he cavorted with other dogs. I talked a bit to some of the other people, actually some guy who talked to me for 20 minutes, and frankly that one wasn't so great, but it was interesting. I remember thinking, my God, men have the reputation of not sharing their emotional selves. This guy was dumping on me for 20 minutes and I didn't even know him. I know about his ex-girlfriend. I know about his two jobs. I have the whole story of his four uh, dogs. I know he's been down for about six years after he lost, you know, this one job. I know that his bicycle was stolen off his porch. I know he's damn determined to get another one. And he feels like he can, and I know he was reading a book by some architect that said, if you move into your house and you think you want to build a path, maybe leading to the front door or a path somewhere else, don't do it right away. Wait and see where people walk. Let life decide where that path should be not you wait take time and that was a little gem from this guy who was just um because that's true too so i thought the lesson was <laughs> the weekend slow down As much as you have the power in the little choices we make throughout the day, slow it down. It's hard to do because we live in a culture that uh, is not slow. 
and that in fact is speeding up even as I speak and we are all racing all the time to keep up and the minute I think you pull away and pull back to the way humans lived for our entire history before this crapola came along it's wonderful just be where you are be where you are and don't be afraid of quiet of silence of your thoughts anyway I had a great weekend great weekend and mostly that's what I wanted to say and my good my good mood um, wasn't even dissipated by reading <laughs> the news which I did but I did totally stay away from any television news um, I even decided to stop checking weather because it seems to me that the forecasters on my, you know, what's the weather? I have two weather apps because I check one and, and then I compare it to the other. And I'm thinking, actually, I told Rodney, our receptionist the other day, when I was leaving on Friday, he says, they say it's going to rain this weekend. He was already down in the dumps about it. And I said, I know. I said, remember how wonderful it was when weather was just something that happened? <laughs> that it didn't, in advance of its happening, take up your thoughts and have so much impact on your plans where you would see rain in the forecast and you would think, oh. And then so often, they're wrong. And they were wrong at least where I was all weekend. It didn't rain. I know some people had a lot of rain. I had none. I'm thinking, why? What was wrong with not knowing? I mean, you need to know if there's a, a, a tornado coming or a flood or a hurricane. But other than that, what is it? Or you need to know what the temperature is. It's nice, so you know what to wear to be comfortable. <laughs> But I swear, I know I started talking last week about trying to pull away from my addiction to this damn phone and all the stuff it spews at me. And I'm really trying, and I did good this weekend, and I just want to pass that on to you in case uh, you have had similar experiences and need to be reminded right, of how wonderful it is to just stay where you are and appreciate it. So, that said, <laughs> that said, Oh, well, here's something sort of in keeping with this. I mean, I was happy to see this. I've got, I'm a little skeptical. 
But apparently even the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, uh, with that uh, guy at the head that I can't stand, Ajit Pai or Pay, um, he says, because he's gotten so many complaints, this is where complaining to like an agency, if there's enough of us, does get attention. But the fact is, is that People have been complaining to the FCC. They've been complaining to their Congress people. And the Congress people have started complaining to the FCC. And it's about robocalls, right? If you have a landline, I still do, it now is mostly something I never pick up. I never pick up. And I wonder, why do I have it? It's nobody I know, nobody I want to talk to. They're in true, the ringing, you know, breaks into my life. It's an intrusion. And now they got our cell phones, and they're doing that as well. So it says here, due to widespread consumer complaint, the FCC says it will take steps to allow phone companies to block robocalls. So they've been keeping the phone companies from blocking robocalls. Robocalls are the number one complaint by far <laughs> that the FCC gets. Um, these robocalls now often are illegal. I get ones all the time telling me that there will be a warrant issued for my arrest for some kind of I don't know what. Those went on for years. I get ones supposedly from Duquesne Light that I don't think are from Duquesne Light. I've never responded. The fact is, is that an Apple, Apple doesn't call you, but how many people, especially older people, who don't know and feel vulnerable don't like pick up these calls and end up getting burned, getting scammed. I mean, this should be stopped. So we'll see what they come up with. I'm, I've been made cynical, I admit, when it comes to stories like that, but we'll see. Um, might be better. In an effort also to avoid stories about you-know-who, um, I started reading uh, more international news stories when I was reading the paper. And I found myself skipping all these ones about you know, the investigations going on and the lawsuits and the this and the who said what and the blah, 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 because, man, that is just, that is now, like, just background noise. You know, there certain things will happen that a person needs to know, but generally following the, the daily back and forth in D.C. is not necessary, again if you start trying to slow down. So I read this 
story about this guy. Must be such a courageous man. His name is Alexander Gorbunov. I don't know if I'm pronouncing right. Gorbunov. And I'm looking at a picture of him. He's a nice-looking guy, but he's scrunched into this, looks like a tiny wheelchair. And his legs looked useless. And his arms looked pretty useless. And I started to read about him. He cannot walk. He can barely move. Even his hands. But, oh boy, <laughs> his brain and his heart are fully functional. He's 27 years old, which blew me away, too. And he has become a social media sensation in Russia because he openly takes on Vladimir Putin. Now, I, I don't know about you, but my impression is, is that people who openly ridicule and or take on Vladimir Putin might meet an untimely fate. Uh, that's just the way it, it works. Uh, and he, in fact, has been, and his family have, have been harassed by police. The police uh, showed up at his parents' house, at his brother's house, these are in different cities. There were threats made. He decided that the only way to save his family and himself, at the time he was, he was doing his stuff underground under a pseudonym, but they learned who he was. And he thought, the only way I'm going to keep the authorities from terrorizing us is if I do it openly. So he stopped hiding behind a uh, a moniker that was not him. He started instead to get out there. And he said, I'm just an ordinary guy who sees what millions of other ordinary people are seeing in Russia every day. And he figures that because he now is open and because probably he is so clearly not any, he doesn't look threatening. He's this little teeny thing that much of his body doesn't work in a wheelchair. And even for the Kremlin to go after that, would they, I think, would understand, would not be... Um, great optics. He is one, however, now of the Kremlin's most potent foes.
this 27-year-old guy with a spinal muscular atrophy that is continuing to degenerate his body. He probably doesn't have much life expectancy. But this is evidence that what we think of Vladimir Putin, I mean, how, do, how does America see him? I know, I see him as this wily, I mean, he's playing us because of our president. He's playing us left, right, and center. He, is, he has reinstituted Russia's presence on the global stage. And every place Trump has pulled us out, Vladimir Putin has gone right in with Russia, Syria, anywhere else that we start abdicating, Putin moves in. The fact of the matter is Putin, Putin's popularity is, is going south in Russia where they like autocrats because it's what they've known. Uh, and this guy is the most vocal. He's giving, he's, he ridicules Putin, so people laugh. They read this guy's stuff, Gorbanov's stuff, and they laugh at Putin's posturing. And it turns out that the view that we have of Putin is the view that Putin wants us to have. And we have the view because of our ignorance of what's going on in Putin's own country. His people are not happy. Their living standards are going down, not up. Their gap of rich, 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 and everybody else is every bit as bad as ours, if not more. So Russia, which is playing Donald Trump left, right, and center, um, is in many ways still an extraordinarily underdeveloped country. And so the people who live in Russia, do you know, like, what is it, 12% of the households in Russia don't have any hot water? I mean, you think of Russia, you think of, well, look at them, they're powerful, they're right there with us. Do you think people who don't have hot water in this day and age are happy campers? An eighth of the population does not have an indoor toilet? It is a poor country where most people live poor. There are, and we don't hear about them, there are lots of demonstrations in cities throughout Europe that take Putin on. The people there are restive and angry. We should know that. So we stop falling for Putin the somehow, you know, the bare-chested, Goliath. This guy, Gorbanov, is mostly dismayed at how Americans misread Putin. He can't believe it. 
he says you in the U.S. see him as a masterful, all-conquering villain, like somebody who should be in a James Bond movie, right? The villain in a James Bond movie. And he says the fact that you guys see him like that emboldens him. He loves it. Gorbanov says they love this image of Dr. Evil as a genius, as a genius bad boy standing against all. That depi depiction makes the Kremlin happy. So uh, let's stop. Let's get rid of that because I read something else then. After reading that, I read something else that there has been this huge, uh, huge furor in Russia, bottom up from the people, screaming and yelling that the Orthodox uh, Church was putting up a huge new cathedral on the only green space in a city of one and a half million people. Everything else is concrete, and they were about to take, and the people were in the streets. It's in a one and a half million people. It's called Yekat. Yekaterina, blah, 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 I don't know what it's called. This was big in Russia, and Putin had to involve himself. One of his oligarchs is behind this. Um, public frustration in Russia with the Kremlin has been growing and growing. Putin has made very unpopular changes in the pension system for all these poor Russians, and they are angry. So he's got trouble at home. And one of the ways, just like our presidents, when they're in trouble at home, often do a wag the dog kind of a thing, right, where they distract our attention to something over there, that's how Putin uses us in many ways because the people who are so angry at him at home do still swell with some pride when they see that Russia, after the humiliation of the breakup of the Soviet Union, which is still fresh in their heads, that Russia is back. That they like, and that bellicosity and taking on the world internationally is the only thing that keeps him probably more comfortably in power. Domestically, he's got trouble. Just saying. And you might say, who cares? I care simply because I think it's important that we don't kid ourselves about what the reality of our enemies is, and he is our enemy. And stop feeding into, well, our media do and we do too, um, this idea of him being so brilliant. A lot of people say he, you know, 
He's a, he's a good player of the geopolitical game. When it comes to actually governing Russia, mm, not so great. In the little bit of time I have left, I'm, I am going to, um, because I think this is important to know, it's a really good piece that was in the Saturday uh, Wall Street Journal. They put out a um, they put out a section that is book reviews and op opinion pieces that are not necessarily right wing. Just some good stuff, food for thought. And they have this, which is an excerpt from a forthcoming book about the dangers to democracy right now, not just here in this country, but to in the world. And um, the book is about that, Ill Wins, it is called Saving Democracy from Russian Rage, Their Need to Get Back on the World Stage. Chinese Ambition, their intent to push us aside and be the world superpower, and American complacency. Long title. These books get us damn long titles now, but that sort of sums up what he's trying to say. Anyway, I found it fascinating because he's got numbers here that, uh, that show that democracy, which we somehow think is an inevitability because we've lived in a democratic nation and we have seen in our lifetimes democracy spread throughout the world. We saw the wall come down. We saw Eastern Europe throwing off the chains of their communist autocracies and turning to democracies. We saw it democracies burgeoning in South America, in Africa even. We were seeing democracy, and it sure looked like democracy was what was going to be. It doesn't look like that anymore. It was a flash in the pan. And this guy says, what well, we got to get through our heads and again, this is like not being able to see the forest for the trees because we've always lived in a democracy and we see democracies, you know, uh, flourish in other places. He says there's nothing inevitable about democracy or about the expansion of democracy. Since 1900, democracies did expand. In the world, in 1900, there were what you would call 11 democracies. Now, he's only counting countries over 1 million population because there might be little ones here and there that are sort of democratic. Only 11 democracies in 1900. 20 years later, there were 29 democracies. Jump to 1974. Oh, no, 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 I'm sorry. 20 in 1920, and just another nine added in 1974. But so in 1974, probably in much of our lifetimes, there were only 29 democracies in the world. 
by 1993, that number was 77. From 29 democracies in 74 to 20 years later, 77 democracies. 2006, 86 democracies. We'd won, right? But he says, uh uh. There have been 12, the last 12 years, democracies are starting to go. There is retreat all across the world. Over the last decade, one in every six democracies has failed. And today, only a slight majority of the world's nations, over 1,000, of over 1 million people, remain democracies. So what had been throughout our lifetimes is steady, really pretty stunning increase is now starting down. And he points out that it has been America more than any other nation. We have been the leader in spreading that democratic expansion. And we have been the leader in holding back democracy's enemies. the ambitions of a rising China, the resentful declining Russia, and then you have all these populist, autocratic governments weakening the EU. You can see the European Union just, just struggling to stay alive if you're paying attention. Hungary, Italy are the two that readily come to mind. Poland seems shaky to me. And now, I think a majority of Americans feel that our own democracy is increasingly at risk. Our current president has insulted our normal allies and embraced our enemies. We have a political system that can't seem to function anymore, and we have what he thinks the biggest problem is, is we have we, the people, a complacent bunch who cannot even bother to get up off their increasingly fat behinds and vote. He says it's pretty clear if we do not soon reverse this retreat uh, from democracy in the United States and standing against those who would destroy it in other countries, if we don't soon get back into the saddle, democracy worldwide is going to be at risk. 
I mean, be, we're, we're mixed up because we lived through so much change. 91, Soviet Union goes down. A sort of a democracy takes its place. 94, South Africa's autocratic racist government goes down. And in a democratic election in which black and white citizens there have the same vote, a freely elected president emerges, Nelson Mandela. This is what we have seen. Revolutions in Serbia, in Georgia, and Ukraine brought democracy to those former Soviet Union strongholds. For the first time in history, most of the countries on earth were democracies. Every region on this planet, except the Middle East, had a critical mass of democracies. That was just a few years back in our lifetimes. Even after the shock of 9-11, more democracies, seven more, he counts, emerging. So that puts us in this millennium now. And since that, it's not only stopped, it's begun to reverse. And the key element of this Sad, sad deterioration has been anti-immigrant. That's what's driving it everywhere. Hatred and fear of desperate people. And we see it here, and seeing it here, you see why Trump cozies up to the guy in Hungary, because that's how he's governing too, stoking fear and hate of the other. In one country after another, elected leaders are attacking the tissues of democracy. People forget Adolf Hitler was democratically elected. Duterte in the Philippines, democratically elected. Donald Trump in the United States, democratically elected as he turns to divide us, stoke fear and hate, and deride the institutions that have kept our democracy relatively strong. You see the same thing in every one of these countries. Hungary, Italy, Turkey, the U.S. An elected leader, a democratically elected leader goes after the judicial system, goes after the media, goes after civil society, universities, 
civil service, intelligence agencies. It's a list they all go after because they have to undermine those institutions of democracy. Trump is doing it as if he's got a playbook. So whether the person who is destroying the democracy is a right-wing nationalist like Vladimir Putin in Russia or a left-wing socialist like Hugo Chavez or Maduro in Venezuela, the result is the same. The structures and norms of democracy are eviscerated one by one, slowly but surely, until all that is left is something that looks like a democracy, but it's a shell. Religious intolerance on the rise now in the huge democracies of Indonesia and India, in case you haven't been paying attention there. Those are two huge democracies that are turning to the same kind of divisive politics and division and hatred of others and undermining all of the institutions that have kept their democracies intact. In the Middle East, remember the Arab Spring when democracy was spreading all over the Middle East? One is still standing, Tunisia, and it's wobbling now. The problem, this guy says, is not just that democracies are declining, it is that autocracies are becoming more aggressive and more repressive. And technology is allowing it. Facial recognition, able to, able, that they are watching their citizens constantly, monitoring every move we make. And they're emboldened by Donald Trump because he welcomes them with open arms. They know they don't have to worry about America as it used to, pushing back against them. And this guy says, because we can't see the forest for the trees, because this is a slow descent, we are lulled into, oh, yeah, it'll be okay. Yeah, I, yeah, I know, I know, Hungary, Italy, India. Yeah, Indonesia, yeah, Venezuela, oh, yeah, right, 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 I know. But we'll be okay. And he says, that's not the way that works. The way it works is gradually, take Venezuela, gradually, and then, as if overnight, suddenly, and your country's gone. Those of us, and I know 
many of you are among them, who fear what is happening to us, have great reason to. It's happening everywhere. It's happening everywhere. Democracy is no longer something that is healthy. It's barely hanging in, and we have joined the crowd. We are not holding back the autocracies anymore, and we're in danger of becoming one ourselves. That's the reality. And we should know it. And we should do as much as is in our individual power to pull this country away from where we're heading. I'd suggest taking the bus. You meet people. You learn things. Get outside your bubble a little bit. Anyway, all that, not happy stuff, but I still feel happy now. We'll see how long this lasts. Anyway, that's it. Tomorrow, uh, Susan should be joining us. And uh, hope you have a good day. Lynn Cullen Live, Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and archived at pghcitypaper.com. The opinions expressed on Lynn Cullen Live are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers. <laughs>